Welcome to the Holistic High Performance Podcast with your host, Daniel Christofferson. Hello and welcome. I would like you to become aware of how you are sitting or standing or walking right here, right now. Don't change anything. Just be aware of where you are right here, right now. Are you balanced in your feet if you're standing? If you're sitting, are you sitting equally or not? Don't change anything, just notice it. Feel it. And now become aware of your head, where it's placed on top of your spine. Is it like a dot on top of the eye or is it kind of off askew somewhere. And now tune into your breath. Breathe in and out through your nose. Feeling the fluidity. Or if it's a little tight here and there. Take a couple of larger deep breaths again in and out through your nose. And now, whether you're sitting or standing, engage both feet, root both feet down into the ground. Centers of your feet, just in front of the heel bones, the calcaneum, calcaneus in English. (laughs) Root down into the earth. Feel the strength of those roots. And now this will work better if you're sitting, feel your sit bones, sits bones, roots going down from your sits bones into the earth. And notice this rooting between your feet and your sits bones. Where are you? What does this feel like to you? And now feel like you're lengthening up gently from your sit bones and your feet through the top of your head Gently, not too much. And notice the alignment of your head on top of your spine now. Did that change? Are you comfortable? Is it familiar or not? Tune into a couple of normal size breaths as you're keeping this tuning in to your feet and your sits bones and the alignment, the general alignment of your head on top of your spine. And now two larger deep breaths, larger breaths in and out through your nose, keeping grounded through your feet and your sits bones, lengthening gently through the top of your head. And I invite you to come back to this exploration during this podcast and see how it feels to you while you're, while you're listening. Thank you. 
Thank you, Betsy. And today's episode, we're going to talk about awareness and how do we tune into our bodies. We're going to talk about movement. We're going to talk about presence. And I am just so delighted to have Betsy Barron show up on the show today with us. Uh, she's the developer of structural myofascial therapy, providing advanced education for therapists and professional body workers throughout Canada and Europe. Before becoming a massage therapist and structural integrator, Betsy enjoyed an exciting 15-year career as a soloist with the Le Grand Ballet Canadien. Motivated by her interest in the diverse ways of body, the body moves, she went on to study the more biomechanical workings of the body. Her years as a dancer have placed her in a unique position to know firsthand how physical injuries can impact the body. Welcome to the show, Betsy. Thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, it's a delight to be here. Can you share us a little bit about your history with ballet and how you went, went on to become a soloist? And... Okay. Yes. Um, first of all, I have to say I started when I was seven years old, one day a week, and I fell in love with it, much to my parents' dismay. <laughs> and then after a few years later, I got to go on point and I got to do two hours a week. And so then the passion I was driven by passion. And luckily I got to go to a, an arts summer camp and boarding school in Northern Michigan, Interlochen Arts Academy. And, um, and that way I could really be with art-filled geeks of music and dance and, and you know all of that world. So we all were weirdos all hanging out together. You know, how many hours did you practice? we broke into the dance building and improvised for four hours, you know? So um, it was a, it was really um, a beautiful supporting schooling that I had uh, before I, when then I graduated, went to Juilliard, didn't like that, then got into some other ballet schools, which finally I ended up as a professional dancer at Les Grands Ballets Canadiens in Montreal. It's a difficult career. Being a dancer and a ballet dancer, it is like a high, re highly refined sport. I mean, I hate to call it a sport, but it is. You know, the it you're it's it's so specific. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're taped because you've got injuries, that tape can't show. <laughs> you know? So um, it was driven by by passion. I danced injured. I had a number of injuries. I remember my artistic director coming to the theater and seeing me with ice around my neck and my hair was up in a bun and I was putting makeup on and getting ready. And she said, my God, girl, you really want this, don't you? And I said, I do. <laughs> so, you know, you work through the injuries. Um, you do it because you cannot not do it. So tell me a little bit about that mindset. I mean, so you're in pain, your body's talking to you, you know, um, and can you kind of describe some of what these injuries are? Well, one of the injuries that I had early on was somebody was choreographing and I was up in a partner's arms above his head and somebody was supposed to take me down and that person didn't take me down and I fell and hit my head and got whiplash. So that began some, some neck issues. Mm -hmm. And then I would say that the most difficult injury that I had, cause there are ankle injuries, there's low back injuries there. You know, you do exercises, you figure out what to do. You, the doctor says to take a week off and you take a day and a half off and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> 
but uh, we were on tour in Switzerland. It was my very first tour with the company, my very first European tour, I think. Um, and um, during performance, a partner and I, my partner and I missed a lift. He caught me by my heels. And I, once again, I hit my head. <laughs> Um, had a, a skull fracture and a concussion, actually. Luckily, I was in Switzerland. I was in Lausanne. I had great care. And um, some friends took me to Paris to heal so that I could meet up with the company three weeks later and start dancing again. Mm -hmm. um, but again, while I was in the hospital in Lausanne, I got out of bed to walk. And the nurses were saying, no, 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 you can't walk. And I took my partner's arm, even though he dropped me, I still trusted him. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I, in my head, I said, I know how to walk one foot in front of the other. The room was spinning. Mm -hmm. I held on and I just walked. And I did that for the four days that I was in that hospital. So that's another piece of continuing on, of not letting that say, okay, no, I can't. Yes, I can. And then... I saw a neurologist in Paris who told me, oh, I forgot something important. <laughs> I forgot that I, I, um, I lost my sense of taste and smell from that skull fracture. Okay. So the brain that jars and hits the, those nerves, olfactory nerves and all mm -hmm. of that. I, I realized this when I was in those days, we could smoke anywhere. And I, the cigarettes gitan really stunk. And I realized I was sitting next to somebody in the airport and I couldn't smell hmm. the cigarette. And then somebody gave me something to drink like Coke or something. I yeah. used to drink that stuff <laughs> and um, I couldn't taste it. So then when I went to the neurologist in Paris, he told me that I most probably would never smell or taste again that I might perhaps get the, the gross, you know, like salt and sweet, but nothing mm -hmm. refined. So um, in my head, I said, F you. Uh -huh. But that, you know, that sense of like, I'm gonna, I am gonna taste and smell again. Then when I got back to Montreal, another neurologist said the same thing. And again, I had the same reaction. So what happened from that was I decided I don't know how I came to this, but I decided that I would try to remember what food tasted like, mm -hmm. what things tasted like. So, you know, like a, a good carrot, what does that taste like? It wasn't tasting like anything. I went into my memory. I went into good, you know, good tasty things that I had memory of taste. And I, and it took a while, but slowly, slowly it came back. And my goal was to smell the lilacs in spring. Mm. And it took me three years. And after three years, that spring, when I could smell the lilacs, you can imagine the tears of joy of smelling that, just that delicious sweetness of spring lilacs. One of my favorite scents. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. a great story. I mean, one, it just shows your sheer determination, but two, it's not letting other people define your reality for you. Like you knew internally, like, no, I'm, this is here. It's available to me. You know, like, and you, that self-correcting system of our bodies. Um, yes. Yes. And without knowing that there was something else that was, was guiding me. And we live this often that, 
people are, are guiding us and we listen to them and we forsake too often our, our real, our, our own reality, our own honesty. And our world gets smaller and smaller. I know in working with clients that come in and, you know, they've seen their doctor and they say, oh, you're never, you're never going to be able to play basketball again, or you're never going to be able to do this. And people accept that. And, you know, eventually our world gets smaller and smaller and we stop doing the things that we love and those passions. And so um, that's a fantastic story. Uh, And (laughs) (laughs) so big injuries, you're in Paris you know, you see this doctor. Did you go back and continue on with the ballet on the tour? I did. I did actually. And and the people I was staying with was staying with took me to when I started to go back to to ballet class to retrain. I went to like the major ballet teacher that dancers from the Paris Opera, other professional dancers would go and take this this daily class. A man named Franchetti and um, the studio was stages used to be raked mm-hmm. on, so a, on, on an angle slant yep because that the theaters were flat so this way so the stage was raked the same amount of the stage of the paris opera stage hmm. so i got in shape kind of you know standing on a slant <laughs> but it prepared <laughs> me for getting back to the company on tour in the south of france the company would not let me dance the role that I had hurt myself in and I'm kind of glad, you know, every time I'd hear the music, I would get this, mm-hmm. maybe not yet, maybe not this tour, maybe some other time. But I did slowly get back into my full evenings of, of dance by the end of that tour. So that was, I would say about eight weeks after the, the accident and the injury. And um, yeah, that was an, 1979 and I left the company in 1991 so yes so that was pretty early on in your dancing career it was it was did that ever resurface and kind of come back or did you kind of feel like you kind of moved beyond that once you did I I have moved beyond that I had and I still do have great body workers mm-hmm. you know cranial sacral therapists osteopathy osteo here in in Quebec in Canada is a manual therapy and not a medical mm-hmm. doctor so I had great and great acupuncture and great, you know, great complementary. Oh, huge health. support team to yes. help you and keep your body functioning. Right. So people that might not be familiar, tell me a little bit about, you know, I mean, the soloist is kind of like the very top level echelon of ballet. Well, it's pretty high up there. I got to say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, there aren't many, you know, a lot of, a lot of youngsters want to become ballet dancers and there are not a lot of openings. Although more and more, I've got to say with these dance shows, you know, so you think you can dance in world of dance that's opened other opportunities for people, which is just wonderful. Yeah. But it's a, it's a, an intense training. It's really, really intense. It's another case of you have to be passionate about it. It's not kind of, it's not one of these things of like, well, I think I'll do it and I'll have a good career and then I'll do something else. And no, you have, it's too hard to just kind of think maybe I want to do it. People go to, to accounting school or some kind of, they get some kind of degree to have like, you know, they're a plan in case something else doesn't work. No, this is, this is the plan. <laughs> There's this little quote from Mercy Cunningham you have to love dancing to stick to it. 
It gives you nothing back, no manuscript to store away, no paintings to show on walls or maybe hang in museums, no poems to be printed and sold, nothing but that single fleeting moment when you are alive. Yes, and I have a story of one of those zone moments, that fleeting moment. We were on tour in China. This was in 1984, I believe. And um, I was dancing a lead role in one of the Balanchine ballets called Serenade. I was dancing the lead Russian. It's a very difficult role, but lots of jumping. I was a jumper. I loved to move. You know, I didn't, I wasn't one of those stand on one leg and the other leg high in the air and, you know, forever. I just, I, I was a mover. You wanted and, to be uh, flying through the air. and Yeah. Yes. And so this particular performance, I, I loved dancing this role. And, you know, there were more difficult parts in the role that I always kind of really was thrilled when it went well and less thrilled when I missed it or it was less good. But this performance was in the zone and it was as if I was watching myself dance it. Mm -hmm. And I still remember to this day, you know, I have maybe in one hand the amount of performances that I feel that way about. And this one sticks out as the number one. And my artistic director came to me after performance and she said, I don't know where you were, but that was the most amazing performance. Um, thank you. And I <laughs> just... I just felt so kind of in the isness place, the place of is. I just was. Yeah. And, and, and is that a goal to kind of be in the is place? Yeah. With brain, the recent brain research that they've done in the last 20 years, they found that a lot of people who do those extreme sports or do those kind of in that zone that you're talking about is that usually we're going around kind of down the center line of our brain, which is more of our ego. And when we really get out of that and go more lateral in our brains, it's we really connect to that bigger field of the world around us and we kind of get in that place. Um, and it's what allows the base jumpers to be able to do what they do and the people who surf these crazy waves and because it is kind of that life or death moment almost. And right. so, yeah, I'm going to read another little quote here. And then um, so it always feels like death, at least at first, your muscles stretch and burn until they may rip, might rip. The bones in your hips threaten to rotate out of their sockets. Your spine lengthens and twists into impossible shapes. The veins in your arms swell, blood pulsing through them. Your fingers tremble as you try to hold taunt, the, but graceful, just so. Your toes jam into a pretty pink box, battering your feet with constellations of blisters and bruises. But it all looks effortless and beautiful, I hope, because that's all that really matters. Uh, that's from Tiny Pretty Things. It was a book by Sonia Charapati uh, that's recently been uh, made into a Netflix show. Okay. Um, but I think that kind of encapsulates what a lot of ballet dancers experience is of, you know, the, the pain and the struggle, but also that joy of movement and kind of really, you know, putting themselves, forming their bodies. I mean, ballet is so much about that form and you know, a specific look and a specific way of being, and you adapt to the form of ballet. Would you say that's true? Yes, yes. And the the goal is to be in such fine form that you can play with it. Yeah. You know, to get into that isness of I can ask anything of my body. People, people. After I retired, 
from the stage said to me, well, do you dance for fun? <laughs> and I said, dancing for fun was when I was rehearsing eight hours a day and was in that fine form. And then I could play with it and have fun. Now I do kind of like put on some music, close the door and just move. You know what that what's that quote? Dance like no one's watching you. Yeah. You know, and 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 actually that is advice I give to people, not necessarily exactly like that, but it is good therapeutic movement to just we'll get into that later, I guess, (laughs) today. So on that note of advice, what advice would you give to young dancers today? You have to really, really want to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's not always easy. There are lots of frustrations. There are lots of disappointments. I remember I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. And I remember auditioning at my ballet school for the ballet company. And we had to do a combination of movement that had double pirouettes. And that is like a basic of what you need to do. And I fell off the double pirouette and I just kind of said to myself, oh, well, you know, I just kind of, and I did not get in. And I realized, okay, not oh well, it was not okay. Mm -hmm. So when I worked really hard and got to New York and studied in the different ballet schools. I actually studied with Merce Cunningham, the quote that you read earlier. He was amazing to study with. He spoke so softly, you had to gather around. I'm sure he did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you, you always have to, I mean, New York is really, you have to take your place every second when you are in class. Otherwise, you get in the back of the line there's always something coming up to replace you. Yeah. And when I went to Montreal to audition for the ballet, for Les Grands Ballets, they said that they didn't need any more women, but that I was welcome to stay and take class and watch rehearsal. So I took that as a little door opening. Uh And every morning in morning class, I took that class like I was auditioning. And in three weeks, I had a contract. Hmm. So, you know, I wasn't pushy, but I was really interested. I worked really hard. I watched rehearsals. I had a really positive attitude, positive attitude, positive energy. Nobody likes to be around frowns and that negative heaviness. That energy's thick. Mm -hmm. So So creating that positive experience, not only for yourself, but for everybody else around you. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and it's difficult if your parents, my parents sort of supported me in that enough so that I think they knew that if they didn't support me, I was going to do it any, anyway. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I mean, we see it happen so often now. I mean, kids start, you know, they start ballet at age three. I mean, the fact that you were seven and only doing one day a week, I mean, that you had a chance to kind of grow and develop, which I think is really missing a lot of now. I mean, we've pushed things down so far where it's like the sooner you start, the the better off they think people be. But I, in my experience as a body worker, I see this with sports and other things. It's like you need those early years to really develop and, you know, have your body go through its natural process to kind of get the different skills and have your body develop in a way that instead of forcing it into a form. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. I, I started playing 
piano when I was three. Mm -hmm. um, my father was a musician and taught me, was my first teacher. So I could read music before I could read words. So the music was in me. So if parents want to start their kids in some kind of movement with music, learning how to move with music, I think that's, that's great. We see little kids, you know, kicking balls, you know, at, as soon as they can start walking and start throwing balls. So, but if parents put on music and kind of move around with them and that's- um, I think the thing is that, you know, it just needs to be fun and it needs to be that discovery and exploration yeah. of like what your body can be and not so much the, the pressure of like, this is a performance in a way or that there's an end result or a goal. Right, yes. So tell me about the transition from being a ballet dancer to your career was coming to an end by choice. I'm taking it. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a short career. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to stop performing before the critics kind of notice that you shouldn't be performing anymore. Right. Uh -huh. So, so I had been saying for a few years, okay, in three to five years, I'm going to, I'm going to hang up the point shoes. And one day I was at my friend's house. She was my physiotherapist and we'd become close friends. And, um, and I was talking to her about going into a career change and not wanting to go to physio because as a non-Canadian, I would have had to do a ton of schooling before I could even apply to physio school. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that kind of work anyway. I wanted to get my hands on immediately. And dancers actually, we massage each other. You know, you're sitting yeah. on the floor while somebody else is rehearsing and you work on somebody's calf or somebody's neck or something. And I was doing that and I liked doing that. So my friend said, well, why don't you do something like, and she named our massage therapist, uh, Dawn Nichols. She said, why don't you do something Dawn does, like Dawn does? And it was like, the light bulb went on. Uh -huh. It's like, oh, that's it. And it was, <laughs> it was. And I took a little while. This was in August and I took a while, went to look at a couple of schools. And in January, I took January of 91. I took um, an intro to Swedish massage. And a week later I started the 400 hour training. And it was, I was still dancing. It was every other weekend. Okay. So it just, happened that the schedules lined up this schedules lined up and and the training was uh, the massage training was january to may and then september till december so it just happened that our exams for that first part were like two days before i left on my last tour for asia hmm. So it all worked out, you know, it was very synchronistically timed and, and wonderful. And I got back and I had a grant, I had a grant to study here in Canada, we have the Dancers Transition Resource Center. And so they, they are very supportive of, of the career change. Mm -hmm. As a dancer, you give a teeny infinitesimal amount of your salary to the, the transition center and your company. Uh, does as does a uh, puts a matching some, grant. Uh, 
Method. Yeah. And so I had a grant to study massage therapy and a living stipend for a year. Gotta love Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful that I have dual citizenship, I have to say. Yeah. So that was very helpful. My last tour, I was already massaging. So on days off, instead of doing too much touristy stuff, I would massage dancers to keep get my hands learning keep more. The practice and yeah. And I remember being in in Thailand and people going for these Thai massages, and I didn't want to because I didn't really know how my, my body would react. And these were going to be my last professional performances, mm -hmm. so I didn't want to be with somebody that might do something that my body didn't like. So yeah. I just and that happens. It does, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was my my last tour that brought me into continuing the studying. And so you had a ready-made clientele as I did. And, and so I did. So I started with, with dancers and musicians. Cause we, when we performed in Montreal, we always had a live orchestra mm -hmm. and I was friends with them. And so I, um, I would start practicing with them and then slowly start charging and, you know, and they would tell people and, and, um, and after a short, short amount of time, I had a, a six week waiting list. That's fantastic. You know, yeah, it was, <laughs> I just loved it. You know, learning, you know how this is, Daniel, you know, you learn yeah. and, and, oh, there's this really cool course and, oh, let me take this course. And, oh, wait, how much can I assimilate? Yeah. And then I took an advanced, the next level at my massage school and started doing cranial sacral through upledger and visceral manipulation. And, you know, you just, you kind of get a better sense of what it is you want to get on board for your own tools. Yeah. And even if you don't practice those, just knowing about those different modalities and being able to refer out or say like, Hey, yeah, I'm not an expert in this, but these people can help you. And right. yeah. And there are so many different systems to the body and there's so many different ways to access and, you know, what, what are the, what are the access points for the population that you're working with? You know, right. how, do, how do you help them get the most benefit from the work that you're doing? Yes. And so, yes. And, and what resonates with me to offer mm -hmm. and who do I know that different work resonates with them that I can refer out to and have a, you know, have the team. Yeah. So these continuing education classes kind of led you to studying structural integration. It did. Um, and now most schools, you have to have gone through the 10 session, 11 session series before you enroll and you hadn't done that. So tell me a little bit about your first experience. Okay. Uh, so what happened actually was first I did a, I guess it was maybe two, three day weekends of core myofascial therapy with George Kuselius. And the way I got to that class actually was that one of the directors of my massage school said, there's a guy coming up from Florida to teach at the Fredericton campus and it's a myofascial course. And I think it's something that you would like. And as soon as he said that, I had this message come in through my right ear <laughs> saying, <laughs> you have to take this course. And I kind of, I, I felt like I went like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I took it in mm -hmm. and you know that that information that you get that you listen to it turned out to be you know the turning point for my massage career so I went to 
to take this course. And um, I was the, when he went to do the first, um, he wanted to the demonstration. To the first, de first demonstration. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> the first, when he went to do the first demonstration, my hand was up before, you know, the words were even out of his mouth, you know. So you wanted to be the model that he worked on. Yeah. I, I'm a kinesthetic learner. You know, I feel it. And then when I watch it, I, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I got it. You know, so when he started getting into the fascial depth and started doing the myofascial stretching, spreading technique mm -hmm. in about, you know, that fast, I felt the connectivity of this, me these membranes throughout my whole body. It was just instantaneous of, wow. I mean, I had a great team uh, that took care of me through my dance injuries, but it was like, this was a missing link. It Not that I even knew, knew I had a missing link, but fascia was under the radar back then. So that really piqued my beginning of a new passion. I was already passionate about massage therapy, but you know, it's like, wait, am I going to really do that deep Swedish kind of stuff forever because people get injured and they have repetitive strain and, and all of a sudden there was seemed like this huge offering for our audience that's not familiar with fascia why don't you share a little bit about your understanding of fascia and what it is for them fascia is the membrane that surrounds everything and connects everything very simply said and depending on where it is in the body there's a different makeup to it a different mm -hmm. different density to it a different fluidity to it but it is the great connector and so, and it connects in through the muscle tissue and the muscle fibers, the muscle cells. And actually we talk about muscles and origins and insertions. There are no origins and insertions. It's like a big body full atlas where we name areas. So we know where we are, you know, you name the mountain range, the Olympic mountain range and the Puget Sound and it's, but it's all connected, everything, runs from the ground into the water that runs into the next country. You know, everything is all interconnected. And I, I see the body that way as well. And that's I, one of those big shifts from structural integration to yeah. massage of, you know, we're not just looking at the parts. We're not looking at the parts that we've dissected out to label and learn about, but we're actually putting all of it together into that holistic piece. Uh, when I share fascia with my clients, I talk about, you know, it's, Every, it's the context of your body. Everything else is embedded within the fascia. Mm. Bones are embedded, the muscles, the organs, the veins, the glands, the nerves, everything is there. And for those that aren't familiar with fascia, uh, if you eat chicken and you take the skin off the chicken, there's that thin film over the top of the meat. That thin film is fascial tissue. Right, right. And for the vegetarians, you know, when you try to take Take the off a, a green onion, you know, there's that filmy thing. <laughs> yep. Or an orange, the, the membranes between the, the segments of the orange, right. that, would, that would be like a similar to the fascial tissue in the yes. body. Yeah. And yeah. because that is continuous, when we when you tap into that and make changes somewhere, you're affecting that whole network everywhere. Right. Right. And yes, and if there's a problem in one area, it's reaching out to other areas. If there's a you know, if there's a, if there's a twist here in the, in the fabric, you mm -hmm. know, it's pulling up higher. So if something's pulling in your elbow or your biceps and you've got a pain here, you know, there's something going, what's going on higher up or what's going 
on lower down. And if you only work in the area of pain, you know, you're going to be missing a big piece. Yeah. So you had this amazing experience. You went on to become a structural integrator and you shared a story with me earlier about after having gone through the structural integration work, you were backstage at the ballet. Yeah. Yeah. So once a dancer, always a dancer. And as a younger retiree, I should say, so dance classical ballet was still in my body of turning out the legs and walking with your legs turned out and people recognize, oh, you must be a dancer. You know, you really identify with that. And when I went through the 10 session series and my alignment became more neutral, I went backstage and realized that I didn't all of a sudden turn into the dancer that I used to be. Mm -hmm. I was me in an aligned neutral body and I felt strong and I felt good and I felt present as opposed to other times I felt like I had to show physically that I had been a dancer. So it was a really huge aha moment for me about my own personal evolution along the way from, from dance into a body worker and the expression of you, you kind of stepped out of that form that you had spent yeah. so long developing as a dancer. Um, right. And my, and I am informed by that yes. career. I am informed by the work that I did and the discipline. Oh my God. Discipline huge. Yeah. And the body awareness and understanding of space and all of those pieces that are there. So yeah. I know years ago I had a gentleman, he was probably about 40 years old, come into my practice and um, I'd never met him before. And he walked in and I go, oh, how long did you dance for? And he looks at me and he goes, how did you know I was a dancer? <laughs> but yeah. just the way he carried himself. I mean, you know, his chest was open, his back was tight, his head was held up high with a long neck and the turnout in his legs. And, you know, it turns out he had been a ballet dancer for 10 years as a kid. Yeah. And so we do kind of put those postures in and hopefully they serve us for the rest of our lives. And sometimes you had an experience where it's like, oh, I, I don't have to stay in that form because I'm not in that field anymore. Right. But people tell me when I'm teaching that they can tell I'm a dancer. I'm, I'm always moving when I'm, yeah. when I'm teaching and talking and I'm very physically demonstrative when I teach. So <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Well, I want to jump into talking about your teaching here a little bit more, but in the meantime, why don't we take a little short break and we'll be right back. You can find out more about the Holistic High Performance and sign up for our monthly newsletter at holistichighperformance.com. That's holistichighperformance.com. And we're back from our break and we're talking with Betsy Barron. So before our break, we were talking about fascia um, and kind of the context of the body and that it's in. So let's talk about some of the ways that fascia gets stuck um, because this really impacts our posture and how we move. Um, so one of those ways is trauma, you know? So you, had, you were mentioning like when things get stuck in one area before the break, you know, and then above and below that. Um, so one of the ways that that fascia can get stuck is through scar tissue. You know, anytime we have surgical scars or even little paper cuts or those kind of things, it kind of creates a little snag in the sweater. 
you know, bad bruises can create little micro scar tissue. Inflammation can create micro scar tissue. Um, whiplash injuries, we kind of get little scar tissue built up there. Patterns. Um, yeah. And then just all the dents and the dings, all those times that we run into the coffee table, we hit our head, we yeah. have something hit us. I mean, all of those little impacts can create snags in that fascial system. Yes. Yeah, I, I um, when I talk, mentioned patterns, things that we don't even realize. I have a, a client that every morning when she would put her makeup on, she would lean, she'd rotate to her right, lean her left thigh into a low table to be able to look in the mirror like this. So she was rotated and leaning and there was a dent in her left thigh. And she had low back pain and rotational neck issues. And, you know, it got a little bit better, but it didn't really finish changing until we got into that whole leg and releasing that dense, dense dent that was a pattern because of how she, you know, of something that she did every day. And so she had to change, you know, she had to change how she prepared for her day. Yeah. And so in some ways that's kind of training. I mean, she was one, it was creating a physical trauma for her, but two, you know, she had this pattern that she kind of habitually went into every day. People who drive a lot, similar thing, like they'll, if they'll turn out with their legs. So, you know, if you're a long haul truck driver or something like that, if you're mm -hmm. yeah, leaning, um, leaning over. So anytime we have patterns that we're doing um, in our day, we kind of put those into our body as well. So as a dancer, you had a lot of traumatic injuries that occurred to you from falls and bruises and, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, stretching, stretching, stretching and having things get inflamed over time. But then you also kind of put this form, you train to form into your body. Right. And consciously. And most, you know, anytime we do something repetitively, we kind of do train these forms into our body to hopefully be more efficient in the activities that we're doing. But sometimes those forms get in the way of us being able to have expression and move in other activities. So, you know, soccer players have a lot of turnout in their legs gymnasts tend to lock their knees back and thrust their pelvis forward right. martial arts you know there's a way that they'll sink into their body yoga people have patterns uh, weightlifters i've worked on musicians from the seattle symphony where the violin players come in and you know their arm is out all the time and their head is turned uh, you know right. as they bow and 40 right. hours a week doing that yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. wonder why their neck hurts on the weekend right right yeah, and with dancers, you know, there's that in the um, the unnaturalness of being a classical ballet dancer, there is still a balance in its unbalanced way of, you know, you do everything in all directions, front side, back side, you know, right, left. I mean, and you you it really trains your um, your senses uh, fantastically. So it might be the part of ignoring the patterns because you've trained your, your physical being so well that you can move through it anyway. Yeah. And then you get your team of body workers that knows how you perform or knows what, what your body needs so that can help keep those 
the myofascial stiffnesses that affect the joints that affect the fluidity and grace of the movement. Yeah. I would say that those patterns are helpful um, in people's bodies, you know, when we train those in, but the problem is, is if we've had poor training or we train in a bad pattern over time, that's going to wear down different parts of the body. Yes. And so that's where having, you know, really good instructors and be having that body awareness to know like, Oh, Hey, that's hurting a little bit early on before it becomes a bigger problem later on. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that when I, when I watch certain dancers, you know, that, you know, they're just throwing their legs around or throwing mm-hmm. their bodies around. And at a certain age, it's okay. But if they want to be dancing for a while, it's not okay. And they should learn ASAP how to have some dimension in their movement instead of just, as I call it, whacking their leg around. Yeah. Well, I mean, anytime you want to you go to that next level and, you know, whether it's going from high school to college or college to pro or whatever that may be, the intensity increases, the amount of time you spend working out increases, the the weight may increase if you're weightlifting. And over time, you know, those bad patterns, eventually they're going to start to break down. And that's where we see a lot of professionals that if they're getting body work, if they're taking care of themselves, you know, they can extend their career and then they can leave on their own choice but there's so many people that get injured and then they jump back out there and they keep going and then they get injured again. And, you know, eventually they've done so much damage to their body that they're forced to leave the career because of the injuries and right. spend the rest of their lives trying to put themselves back together. Right. And, and I think that, I think there's process that we as therapists can offer to the, that clientele. Let's say, let's talk about mm-hmm. that kind of clientele that is, you know, really passionate and really, really wants to keep getting back out there, whatever it is. And how do we help bring them into awareness of there's something else that they could evolve into there, they can use their expertise. And, and there's their expertise and their experiences to move into something else that will be giving back, or giving forward or, (laughs) and that is delightful to be able to uh, support people as as they kind of get a little glimmer of, oh, I'm not I'm not done for. That piece is I'm I'm ready to go on to a next piece, and how exciting that can be. You shared this great quote with me that your role as a therapist is to get your clients to discover. Um, and really it is that body awareness of how do we help people from you know figure out who they are from the inside out and be guides and educators in that. One of the things that I often share with my clients is, you know, you kind of have to know where you are on the map before you can figure out the plan and the route to get to where you want to go. Yeah. So one way to find out where we are is to become curious and start exploring those relationships and sensations in our body. Exactly. Exactly. Those are words, being curious, exploring, having the courage to improvise around what we discover because then all of a sudden there's like this, this whole world of creativity that belongs to you and it's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So you did a little awareness exercise at the beginning of the podcast for us. How else do you guide your clients and students to increase their body awareness? Well, so clients, so in the one-on-one-on-one situation, I always start and end 
if I'm not doing a 10 session series, structural integration series, I do it beginning and the end. During the series, I do it a number of times um, during each session, but allowing people the time to tune in to where they are in their feet. Mm-hmm. I usually do, I, I do this barefoot unless they have a real leg length discrepancy, but barefoot so that they can really feel the ground and find out, discover maybe for the first time their foundation, where their house is. You know, you build a house from the foundation. When you ask somebody to stand up, you know, in a better posture and you ask them, what did you do? What did you start with? They most of the time start with putting their shoulders back. Yeah. So I kind of bring them in to start with your foundation, build your house from the ground up, start with your feet, tune into your breathing. Where is your head on top of your spine? Um, Depending on the person's awareness or lack of, you know, it it evolves Mm -hmm. with, with the client. But the purpose is for the, is for them to tune in where they are before the session. And then at the end of the session, it's the bookend. It's like, what are your first impressions? What do you notice now? And that they, they are empowered to speak first because usually, you know, in, in other kinds of therapies, let's say physio, you know, where they have objective measures that they must do. So they'll, move and and do and measure and then do a treatment and then do and measure again mm-hmm. and so the patient is more asking the therapist what do you see mm-hmm. what do you, and this is bringing it back empowering the the client what do you see what do you feel what do you notice what, what what's, you what's notice? different and to me and, that's about empowering them to have choice because right. You know, there was an old pattern. There was an old way of being. We did an intervention. We've made some changes. And then, you know, we want them to understand that like, oh, hey, um, your story of the woman with the makeup. It's like, oh, you could, you'll keep having this problem as long as you keep going back to sitting at your desk and leaning into it and turning that way. But if you change that patterning of what you're doing, then, you know, you, you have a choice to not have this problem come back. Right. So um, what would you say that some are the more challenging aspects of getting people to develop body awareness? Where do you, where have you found resistance? Certain stereotypical people that don't want to go there, but they (laughs) want your work, you know, so they know that if they come to my sessions, we do, we do this work. And if you don't want to do this work, don't come to see me. Yeah. So they're already, there's a little opening but when somebody stands and, and says, well, it feels normal, mm-hmm. you know, so then you have to break, help them break in, make the, that envelope of normal to understand, well, what does that normal feel like to you? Your normal and my normal might not be the same, probably isn't the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to create, to allow them the opportunity to create their own new normal to realize that other normal they weren't comfortable so what if you feel differently what if you allow yourself what if you explore that it can be different and this is what we can do so that those are some of the those kind of challenges 
There are other challenges where people as children have not been al allowed to express themselves. Mm -hmm. So you get to feel, you feel something deeper emotionally kind of pulling inward. And, and so there's a, a gentle, maybe a more gentle, well, I'm gentle anyway, but <laughs> with the words, but you just kind of, you know, you kind of work with them where you work with people where they're at, right? Yeah. There's an invitation to come into, you know, hey, what are you noticing here? Let's, you know, maybe you touch them. Maybe you bring your awareness there. There's different yeah. ways that you, there's different access points. Um, there are. And if somebody starts to get, if you start to feel like a sympathetic reaction, like even before that starts to manifest itself, okay, let's, let's get on the table. Let's start to work. And then I continue that tuning in with them. It's not lie on the table and fall asleep. You know, it's. Yeah. What do you feel here? What do you feel over here? Oh, that's surprising to me. You know, they're, the, people are aware of what hurts, but they're not aware of the compensatory areas. So it's, it's interesting, fascinating for me, of course, but interesting for, for the client. They discover, here's discovery again. You shared this quote with me, which I wrote down uh, in our pre-interview thing, uh, awareness in itself is healing. Mm -hmm. I think that was Frederick Salmon Pearls. It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. So that um, just in that awareness of like, we're already starting that healing process for people. Right. And then there's the, you know, the choice that happens and the responsibility mm -hmm. that, that the person has if they want to move ahead or not, because it is up to them, right? Yeah. So I'm just curious, how has your awareness of your body evolved over the years? You mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, you were a dancer and then having gone through the structural integration series, you kind of had that aha moment of like, oh, I'm in my line or I'm, I'm different when you were backstage. Right, right. You know, over the years, well, over the years, seven years ago, I had a really bad slip and fall on the ice and I had multiple fractured my left femur. And luckily I had an amazing surgeon that put me back together, you know, really got the, the nuts and bolts in the right place. And so I was up and teaching four months later with a cane, but aware that I was having a real difficulty just walking. And I had to relearn, how do I, how do I sit on the floor? Wait, I can't do this way. This leg isn't working how I'm used to it working. So I, I worked hard on relearning how to use that ultra broken um, leg. And it's doing really, really well. I had the metal taken out three years later because it, it felt like it was getting in the way. So from that usage, over you, you know, that trauma, I do notice some different painful issues that come up if I don't do particular morning and evening movement rituals. I call them rituals because when I do them, I feel a lot better. So it has to do with keeping fluidity in the in the hip joint, the acetabulum and the femoral head and, and how my back and my abdominals in that pelvic area work and how it supports the upper body and, and the lower and my legs. So I'm really aware that is happened over the last few years. 
So that rhythm, self-care for me is something that we do rhythmically. And for you, your self-care is that morning and afternoon kind of movement. Yeah. And I, I think movement is so important because, you know, our body's always craving the novelty of that. And if we get stuck into habits or patterns, you know, we, we miss out, you know, our brain isn't getting activated in ways. And so finding those different ways to move. And, you know, as we talked about with awareness, we start to have choice, you know, right. when people become aware of like, oh, I'm not even aware that I'm stuck in a movement pattern that I have other options. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually, in my rituals, part of my ritual also is to try to mix it up and do something else for that exact reason about not getting stuck in a movement pattern. Yes. I know that when I do these particular movements, the whole fascial density around my hips feels more fluid, but how else can I do it? And what else can I explore? So it keeps it a little more fresh. <laughs> I try to keep it more fresh for myself. Yeah. And so that awareness of our physical body, where we are, that awareness of how we're starting to move through the world. When we have that, we start to develop presence and that ability to, you know, really be present with I often share with my clients, you know, the future is in front of you, the past is behind you, and your body's always in the present moment. And so, because your body is in the present moment. So when we tune into our body, we really do become present. We have, we have access to all the information that's going on right now. Right. And if we have series of, like I talk about my rituals, you know, you need to do the movement in the moment. Yes, we can say, well, when I did this yesterday, it felt like, and today it feels differently. But if you get stuck, people get stuck in how things used to feel. Yeah. And, you know, in a particular yoga pose, you know, I can't do the wheel anymore. And I used to be able to do that as a dancer. I had to do it mm -hmm. in a particular ballet. I can't do that anymore. And so I'm not stuck in the, I used to be able to do it. Although I, I did get stuck in that, but yeah. I worked through it. Like, what can I do to open to feel where I'm at right now in my life at this age right here? What can I do to feel better? Yeah. You mentioned age. And I mean, that's one of the things that a lot of clients come in and they tell me it's like, you know, oh, I'm just getting older or, you know, I saw my doctor and and to me, that really comes from this mechanistic view of the world and our bodies. And so much of modern medicine is this mechanistic, like if it doesn't work, we'll just cut it out. We'll just replace it. To me, aging is just the passage of time. And it's the accumulation of all of those things that have happened to us, all of those traumas that we've incurred, you know, all of the different patterns that we've trained into our system, the all the different belief systems, experiences that we've had. And one of the lovely things that I love about structural integration is to be able to hit that reset button for people and help them kind of break out of the box that they've been in and start to explore what's possible. My great uncle was running a mile a day up until his mid nineties. He actually got remarried at age 95. My grandfather at 85 was parasailing in Mexico after my grandmother passed away because he'd never done okay. it before. Wow. So to me, aging is we should get better. We should become more refined. Um, and so having your body lined up, kind of dealing with some of that unresolved stuff just makes such a huge difference to that yes. and yeah. having choice and awareness. And knowing that we have that choice and awareness, there are people that, that if we can get our clients to realize that they have that choice, that's huge. Yeah. 
because until they get that, then they're just kind of still dependent on coming in to be have a session instead of taking in what this session has to offer and then and then it it growing in the dimension in a in a dimensionality. Yeah, I mean, I share one of my goals with my clients is I share with them. I said, you know, my goal is to get you where you don't need to see me anymore. Like. Right. I really do. I want to empower them to have the tools that they need to start to go out and explore, to learn new things, to really have that growth mindset. Cause we're either living, we're, we're either living and growing or, you know, we're dying. And if we kind of get stuck in those habits and those patterns and our worlds get smaller and smaller, you know, that is a slow death in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I've had a number of clients that say to me, Oh, you know, I'm getting old, my shoulder, this, or my knee, that, and I stopped them to say, I'm sorry, you're the wrong, I'm, I'm the wrong person to say that to. Yeah. You want to, do you want to hold on to that? Or should we try to, you know, should we try to change that a little bit? You know, it's up to you. And well, it goes back to your story of, you know, the doctors telling you like, oh, you're never going to be able to smell again. You're never going to be able to taste again. I mean, that that's one opinion. And right. you, know, you weren't willing to buy into that thought form. You weren't willing to buy into their narrative of this is what your world's going to look like. I know. And guess what? Back then in the late seventies, they didn't know much about nerve regeneration. Yeah. And I mean, it took me three years. What was the, you know, the, the, the brain neuroplasticity that I was working on and what also was the nerve slow regeneration itself. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there are things that science and research is, is exploring and discovering thankfully continuously. Yeah. So as a teacher, you mentioned that your role is to share what you know. Um, and to, in doing that, one of the things that you developed is what's called structural myofascial therapy. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about what that is and how that right. came about? So, you know, I stand on people's shoulders, right? Don't we all? I, yep. When I teach, I say that Ida Rolf is my grandmother or any of us <laughs> that work in this manner. She is our grandmother. Um, you're a Heller worker, Joseph Heller studied with her and she yep. gave him her blessing, you know, yep. and Tom Myers. And, you know, so I was studying with, with my teacher, George Cuselius, and I was started assisting him and teaching for him. And I was noticing that there was, there were more elements that I wanted to add to the class, more awareness, more ex movement exploration, not dancing, but just daily activities, more questions, more time spent around that and, and awareness. And so at a certain point, I kind of separated from him, not kind of, I separated from him and built my own version that was a springboard of what I learned from him. Mm -hmm. and I always speak about him and I'm very thankful for him. I saw him last February in Florida, but I started adding things that I explored and discovered, you know, when we're in treatment, the technique kind of evolves and you go, oh, wow, this is cool. I think I'll teach that. You know, you just kind of build it into your yeah. curriculum. And I say there are two key elements in structural myofascial therapy. And one is the subjective evaluation tool, mm -hmm. which is also, you know, exploration and an integration tool at the end of session. And then the deep hands-on stuff. So, you know, how do you get safely into the myofascial layers? 
And what do you have to open globally first? You know, it's kind of like without it being the 10 session series, mm-hmm. you know, if you're taking, not everybody wants to become a structural integrator and not everybody wants to receive the series. So how do you offer the philosophies of, how, of working in this way of looking at the body as a whole and the person comes in with, you know, what their complaints are, but how do you, how do you evolve this session work so that you bring the person along to know that the sessions will go away from, will be go away from where they came in with the particular pain and they'll end up with something else, a a different kind of session and a different kind of posture and better posture feels easy and free because people think good posture is stiff Mm -hmm. and they think it's difficult. But when you look at it, it process, I teach the process a lot with my patients and my students. This is where you start. And this is where at the end of this session, we talk about that instructional integration in the session work, right? Mm -hmm. Where do you come in and where are you at the end of that session and the process of it? And where does it build? And and it's very much process oriented and it is about, you know, understanding the process of how the body works and how to interact with that. And, you know, you don't want to release the compensation and have somebody end up, you know, the cause is still there and it it starts creating more pain for them. So it's, you know, how do you find those balances? Right. Yeah. And I also, as a teacher, I teach, I'm very um, concerned with how therapists, therapists posture and how they use their own bodies to work you know, dancing around my table, you know, but how do you use that motion? And I am much less fatigued working with the table low and and falling into the tissue and using different tools and, you know, get into the depths and slow, you know, what is the speed? It's slow. You know, the density of the tissue tells you, lets you know how, you know, the rhythm of the work. The speed of thought is very fast and the speed of the body is much, much slower. And so it is, how do you find that gap between, oh, I had a thought and how do we wait for that to kind of make those changes in the body? Right. And staying present as the therapist, Yeah, you know, it's another practice of remaining present. Well, it's that it's the awareness of not only yourself and where you are, but it's also the awareness of how, where is this other person and where are they and how are you guys interacting together in that connection? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really important. And in my, in my classes, I have not only massage therapists, but physiotherapists and rehab therapists and athletic therapists. And so their goals are different. A physio Mm -hmm. has 30 minutes. Yeah. A massage. Massage therapist has 60 to 90. The rehab people usually have longer and sports people are out on the field mm-hmm. often, you know, so it's fascinating to, to explore that. And what is, you know, what are a couple tools that are really important that are outside of what they've already learned mm-hmm. outside of their objective stuff, yeah. outside of their movement and techniques that are way too fast. And if they did it once and slower, they'd have, better effect. Excellent. So where can our audience find out more about what you have to offer and teach? Well, my website is barrenbodyworks.ca. So my last name and bodyworks, plural, .ca. It's in English and French. And currently the last few years, I've been only teaching in French. And um, 
I am, I would love to get into my mother tongue more. I'm grateful that I can speak French and, and teach in French, but um, with the Corona virus and, and everything being shut down, I'm um, trying to work on a couple of videos and a little bodyful tidbits that um, I should be posting on my website in the next few months. I just changed web designers and, and stuff. So we're moving into some new, new pieces. So on my website, and um, they can always email me at um, the email address is education at barrenbodyworks.ca. And any, any course organizers, you know, I'm, you know, we're not traveling that much these days, but it's coming. It's coming. Mm -hmm. So um, I love, I'm passionate about teaching this work. It is so fabulous. It is this course that I took in 2000 with George Kosalius. It was the aha course. It just changed my course. Mm -hmm. um, and I just love to share it. And I love to, to pay it forward and bring it forward and uh, help people in, in this way and help therapists learn this kind of touch and this kind of awareness and this kind of integrating method. Well, Betsy, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest on today's show and sharing your stories and your wisdom. Uh, we covered a lot of material today. We were talking about the role of fascia plays in the body, how fascia gets stuck, body awareness, presence, the importance of movement. It just it was a really rich show, and I am mm -hmm. just so grateful to that you reached out to me and wanted to be a guest on the show. Oh, well, thank, you so, thank much. you so much. I enjoyed this very much, and yeah, thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Holistic High Performance Podcast. You can find all the past episodes of the show by visiting holistichighperformance.com. Please subscribe to the show to listen to future episodes. We release new episodes every Monday and Thursday. This show would not be possible without the help of our team. We wish to thank our executive assistant, Harlow Brummett Dunn, our producer and chief technical officer, Dan Harmon of DH Productions, our podcast mentor, Angel B. Hartwell, the host and executive producer of the Wickedly Smart Women podcast. Our theme music was composed and arranged by Luca Millard Kish. On behalf of the whole team, we wish to thank you, our listeners.